Hi, I'm Jan Marini. I'm the founder of Jan Marini Skin Research. And my favorite thing about beauty is you don't have to be born beautiful. Beauty is a decision. From New York City, you're listening to Beauty is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the beauty industry. On today's episode of Beauty is Your Business, we are buzzing about how to thrive in the changing landscape that is the skincare industry. And so we are excited to be with our guest today, Jan. My name is Denise Dente. I am your co-host for today, and I am here with my business partner and co-host, Jessica Quick. Hey, Denise, this is going to be an exciting episode, having a true beauty icon on the show and being able to travel all the different paths of what skincare has really looked like over the last few decades is going to be really fun. I know. We're excited about this idea of, you know, having skincare and coming through the decades of the skincare industry and how it's changed and how you are able to continue to thrive in this changing landscape that is the marketplace as it is right now. So welcome, Jan. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So Jan, I feel like I have known you, known of the brand for a very long time. I remember being up in Northern California in the 80s and 90s and seeing you at the trade shows and experiencing the different products and brands that you've been with. So can you walk us through a little bit of your history before we get started into the actual brand? Sure. Well, I have been a product researcher now for well over 40 years. And back in the early days, my expertise was in the area of ingredients. You know, I did a lot of lecturing to physicians and medical professionals and skincare professionals. And I did a lot of, you know, radio and television because it lends itself really well to talk shows. People love to hear about ingredients. And as time went on, I began to really develop association with physicians and researchers literally all over the world. And I started to focus on uncovering and identifying breakthrough technologies. And when I say breakthrough, I'm talking about things that weren't in the marketplace. And as an example, I was an early glycolic acid pioneer. And that, you know, I'm taking you back to the early to mid 80s. And then around 1989, going into 1990, I brought to market two product lines. Now, you may remember this. I don't know if our listeners are going to remember this, but MD Formulations, MD Forte. Now, it was really unique for several reasons. Number one, it was literally the first glycolic acid line. But secondly, I made a decision that I was going to market it through physician offices. That was unheard of. Physicians did not dispense product. And I have to tell you, this is my fourth business, but that was the most difficult time I'd ever had during a career because doctors were incensed that somebody would suggest that they sell, as they said, cosmetics out of their office. And you know, even the American Academy of Dermatology and other organizations in the medical community did not sanction selling products out of the office. Of course, you know, that's all history now because who doesn't in the medical community have product available? And then it was unique for another reason, because in 1994, this was literally the first company that was ever purchased by a major pharmaceutical firm in the professional space. In July 1st, 1994, I literally took down the MB formulation sign and put up the Jamarini Skin Research sign. And 
here we are, 28 years. Hard to imagine that it's been that long. It still feels like it's still new. We're still talking about glycolic acid. Really, the professional market, as we call it, which is spas and skincare professionals, physician offices, et cetera, is very new market. When you look at skincare in whatever form it's existed in, even going back in the Estee Lauder days where she pioneered department stores, you think about it, this is just such a young industry. It's really amazing to see how really as we're talking about these late 80s, early 90s, and the the marketplace and what it looked like, the idea of getting doctors on board, the Medispas, to your point, didn't exist. That wasn't a thing. So as I look at the science of Jan Marini and look at your ethos, have you had to adjust that as time went on? Or do you feel like that has really stayed the course and then you do, you adjust the I'm going to call it more of, you know, the packaging or more of the messaging points to consumers, but the core has really stayed or has that changed? The core is really still there. And one thing I'm going to add to this that in a way was rather fortuitous, but at the time I didn't think so. And that was managed healthcare. So here we were when I very first began offering this in a marketplace where, you know, maybe you saw your dermatologist and they charged $60 for an appointment and then managed healthcare came in and now they're getting $15, but they still have to pay their nurses and they have to pay their staff. And so this became a way in which you could capture discretionary income. So that was helpful. Now, with that said, we had to have products that were truly efficacious and that's never changed. And I think the other thing that has never changed if anything I've I've built on it over the years is that you know nobody ever walks into a physician's office and says we want you to sell our product and by the way we have the second best product <laughs> nobody says they have the second best product and you can have the best product but what you have to have really overall is you've got to have the best company you've got to be able to partner with these individuals who aren't necessarily business people you really have to be able to support them and to provide them with a strategic focus so that it's, you know, product that sits on a shelf doesn't sell itself. It's about providing a service to the patient and, and really having something that is medically validated and efficacious. But at the same time, you want them to be really successful. So how do you take these doctors? This is always one of the questions about whether it's the doctor or the hairdresser or the nail professional, these folks that are specialists in their area, and then moving them into providing you know, services, providing products that are different from their core competency. And so you outlined that managed healthcare came in and changed how doctors were doing the business. How do you take and partner with these doctors and move them into marketing and selling skincare? How did that transpire? In a sense, it's a really natural progression because if you are a plastic surgeon or you're a derm, if you're a plastic surgeon and you're operating on somebody that doesn't have good skin, there's a greater degree of difficulty. If you're a dermatologist, you're dealing with all of the common skin concerns and acne and rosacea and aging and discoloration. What I'm going to say is that, again, a lot of times there's this perception that you just bring product into an office, you put it on a shelf, and somebody's going to buy it. And it doesn't work that way. And one of the things that I've always said is 
you know, when I get asked, do I use my own product? Yes. And I say, well, okay, well, what motivates you to do all the research and all of the development and read all the medical journals? And I give the same answer every single time. I say, you know, I'm no different than anyone else. I don't want adult acne. I don't want rosacea. I don't want discoloration. I like to keep fine lines and wrinkles away as long as I possibly can. I don't want another product. I want a solution. And really what this is about, what Jamarini Skin Research is about, is not providing products, it's about providing solutions. And, you know, when you ask somebody, the famous question that we have is if there was something you could change or improve about your skin, what would it be? People might say, well, you know, I break out. Well, what else would you like to change or improve? Well, I have some discoloration. My pores are larger. I wish I had a better texture. That's kind of your runway. And you think about how you'd feel about your skin. If you could address every one of those concerns, and the fact is that the average woman has over $700 in product in her bathroom she doesn't use. So it's very solution focused. Now, that doesn't speak to, though, how does the practice integrate that and all the things you have to do to get your staff on board and you develop a culture. And that's something I think that we're really superb at. And then, of course, you have all the other issues that go on, COVID and unpredictable challenges that happen constantly. Denise and I buzz about this all the time. We call it just time around the sun. If you've been around long enough, you're going to obviously come across these challenges in business. And I would love to hear, obviously, the last few years have presented a whole host of different challenges. But in those early years and getting Jan Marini skin research off the ground, what were some of those early challenges that you saw and didn't see coming per se? I didn't see all of them coming, but I saw a lot of them because one of the things that I'm a serial entrepreneur, and one of the things that when you start a business, a lot of entrepreneurs will say, there's always somebody out there that'll tell you that's never going to work. That's a ridiculous idea. You're not going to succeed. And basically saying that I was going to sell to physicians when it was unheard of, then I had a lot of detractors. And I guess at the time, I really just thought that, well, yes, it would probably be a challenge, but I have a philosophy. And that philosophy in business, I call it proof of concept. You only have to do something once. If I can go out and I'm persistent and I can find one physician that will carry my product, I prove the concept and I will repeat it over and over and over and I'll get better and better at it. You only have to do it once, but you've got to do it. And so I think that sort of another philosophy that I have, and I'm not saying it's the right philosophy, but I don't necessarily believe in five-year plans and that you sit down and you plan out this business and this is exactly how it's going to go and this is what I'm going to do every day because it doesn't work that way. And I have never, ever in any of my businesses, I've never had any outside financing. Again, I'm not saying that that's the, the right way to go, but I just think you have to get out there and you just have to do it. There's no business that doesn't have challenges. Yeah. When you say get out there and do it, I think that there's a whole host of questions that come behind that, which is, you know, these entrepreneurs that are starting out and that are listeners, when you say get out there, are you encouraging these entrepreneurs and beauty founders to do some of the work themselves, um, whether it's researching ingredients or whether it's going and presenting to whoever their channel of distribution is? Are you saying, you know, hey, you need to actually get out there and do the role so you learn it? Is that some of the advice that we're hearing? Well, yes, but I also think that, first of all, that's what being an entrepreneur is. In the beginning, you do it all yourself. It's good news and bad news. If you're truly an entrepreneur, 
you are obsessed with doing everything yourself. And you're obsessed with just the idea that you're creating. I mean, it's exciting. It's exhilarating. It's challenging. But you're birthing something. You are building a business. And that is extremely addictive. But if you're an entrepreneur, that's what it's about. You want to get out there. You want to do everything. Now, this is the bad news. So you build this business. And at some point, you have to begin to hand off a certain amount of responsibility. And, you know, in the beginning, you can, you can delegate because you're still running everything. And at some point, if you want to be a world-class company, you cannot continue to really run day-to-day operations. Now, I used to say I could do anything. I could do marketing and I could write advertising and I could do educational manuals and I can speak at medical conferences. And literally, I felt like there was nothing that I couldn't do. But there's a difference between being able to do all of those things and then what are you really, really good at? And you have to, at some point, be able to bring in individuals who are very talented and strategic that can execute that vision on a much larger level. But in the beginning, oh boy, you better get out there and do everything yourself. What were some of the points in the company's lifespan in which you were ready to then bring in that next person or bring in that next department, let's say? And how did you know that you were there and ready for that? For me, it was a very natural evolution. You know, you build a sales force. And if you are speaking or attending 40 trade shows a year, speaking at medical conferences, putting on continuing education classes, somebody's got to run the sales force. So it's, but it's one thing to recognize that you need to bring in talented individuals. It's another thing to find them and to be able to trust them. So when you do start bringing individuals in, you have to recognize that there's a transition period where you don't just hand everything off. You cannot dilute your vision. You have to make certain that your vision is very clear and very strong and that these individuals are executing it in that manner. You have to have the confidence in your vision. You wouldn't have had that company in the first place if your vision wasn't a good one. And I kissed a lot of frogs along the way. And for me, the real turning point was 13 years ago when I really wanted to, I knew at that point I had a CFO and I had somebody who headed up HR and sales and et cetera, but I knew I needed to have somebody who could come in and literally, in a sense, run at the day-to-day operations, execute that vision. So 13 years ago, I brought on John Connors, who is extraordinarily talented and has tremendous integrity and tremendous ethics. And I have to give him so much credit because he's taken the company to such a a level of notoriety in terms of executing that vision and embellishing on it. And I'm very fortunate because it took a long, long time to find that individual. Let's talk about the distribution strategy and your vision and how those two go together, because we've talked about the fact that you really moved into this physician category and want to own that category. But like we started out the show talking about the shifting skincare environment and where consumers go to buy their skincare, and we've got Amazon, and we've got D2C, and we've got all these different places for distribution now. Where did you start from a strategy standpoint, and where are you now? So, and that's a really great question. It's complex. I'm going to simplify it. 
So when people get into skincare, so many times there's this positioning in their mind where, okay, I want to get into a department store because you have all this foot traffic and you have all this exposure. And when you think about it, somebody walks into a department store and my gosh, it's overwhelming. You're faced with all of these different brands and all you want is a lipstick. And imagine all the money you have to put into your build out and to subsidizing employees and on and on. The entry point is very low in the physician marketplace. Unfortunately, you could go into your kitchen and you could cook up some concoction and pay $2,000, $3,000 to have a table at a small conference and put it out there and somebody's going to buy it. But it's difficult to get past a certain point. And when you look at the physician marketplace, in general, the professional market, and again, I'm including Medispas and skincare professionals, but that marketplace in general grows faster than any of the other market segments. And when you think about it, if you were to look at just the state of California, there are more skincare professionals licensed in the state of California than if you took all of the department stores, all of the CVSs, all of the drug stores, all of the other venues in the entire United States. Now, every one of those skincare professionals has a sphere of influence. Now, we're not even counting the doctors and the Medispas. Let's just say in the state of California, they have an incredible sphere of influence. And they have a tremendous amount of influence on every single person they see. They can develop that relationship. That person can depend on them for advice. It's a matter of channeling their way of doing business. Because, do you know, there's very little difference between a skincare professional and a plastic surgeon. They go to school. They're excited about, okay, now I have a license and I can either, you know, I can cut people open, I can do surgery, or I can do facials. They're both incredibly labor-intensive. If you break your arm you're out of business. If you have a long illness, you're out of business. And even plastic surgeon, they have to recreate their practice every 90 days. Somebody gets a facelift, they don't come back next month and have another facelift. So you see them three or four times maybe. So both of those individuals need to have a stream of income that is not labor intensive. And let me tell you, we all know what happened with COVID. Nobody was doing plastic surgery and nobody was giving facials. And so what you're doing is everybody has skin and everybody uses skincare. Every single person, whether it's a bar of soap, it's a matter of where they're going to buy it. And in the professional market, roughly two cents out of every dollar is spent in the professional market. There's no place to go but up. So it's a matter of really helping people to understand how they can capture that. Just because you give somebody a facial or just because you are giving them antibiotics for their acne doesn't mean they're going to buy product from you. But the fact is, is that this is an extraordinarily revenue productive market. And that's what we do. A lot of our resellers can make far more revenue in terms of product than they do with the labor intensive services. That's really interesting. We talk about supporting, you know, you started talking about how you support the doctors. We've had past guests talking about supporting retail. And so when you look at someone in the professional space, these estheticians or skin therapists, and the opportunity that's available for them to have this additional revenue stream, what does it take to support them? Because that is different than what if you were walking into a department store as a brand to support what are some of the tools? I know education is a minimum, but what are some of the tools that are necessary to support the professionals? Well, you know, everybody thinks that there's a tremendous amount of education on the product. And yes, you have to understand your product and you, you have to be able to reasonably understand various skin conditions. 
But really, when you think about it, whether it's a physician's office or a medispa or a salon, you're taking all these different cultures. And what you have to do is you have to channel them into a way of doing business. You have to define what is your way of doing business. How do you want to have those individuals work with those patients? And you have to define a process. And that's one of the things we've done very well is a consultation process. That sounds like, oh, anybody should they go to school, they should be able to do a consultation. Not true. There's a very defined process because nine times out of 10, if somebody says to a patient, so what don't you like about your product? Mm, I don't know. I like my products just fine. Okay. Where does the conversation go from there? There's a process that you go through. And when you define that process and we define it for you, and when you teach people that process, now we're all singing off the shame sheet of music. Now we have a way in which we can determine whether or not somebody is doing something in a productive manner, because we have a way of judging that. We have a way of holding people accountable. Now you have a process where when somebody comes into a practice, they're able to immediately become more productive because there's a visible way of doing business. And you can define your goals and you can define specifically where you want to be. And other than somebody just comes in there, okay, well, you know, whatever, however you sold skincare over at ABC Salon. And so we methodically work with people on that and we define the goals. And then we also, for example, one of the things that we offer to resellers who come on board, new resellers at a certain level, is that there's something called the TAP program, which is an extraordinarily, it's not something we put on, it's put on on the outside, but it's, uh, I think it's something where they pay about $30,000 a year to go through this. And I, every single person has ever gone through it. They just rave about how it changed their life, their business. They get it for free for, I think it's six months. And so we even have outside resources and we have media resources and we have, we don't have enough time to really even go into all of it that help individuals to really define this process and be successful. And I will tell you something. If I said to a physician or a business owner, and I said, so tell me, how many people do you think you'd need to sell product to a day to net a million dollars a year after the cost of product? And of course, they're going to say, I don't know, hundreds, <laughs> a gazillion. Well, do you know, and it's a very, very low number, a very low number, it's four people a day. And at the end of the second year, you're at over a million dollars a year after cost of product. Now, that's a pretty good goal to have. And it can go far beyond that. That's actually a minimal goal. So being able to say, how do you define that? And it's actually a very simple process, but it's a defined process. Jan, you have shared a lot of information with regards to, you know, how you started your company and some of these processes and so forth. With today's environment in skincare, and to your point, people are doing everything from making products in their kitchen to small, you know, small runs of product. There are a lot of skincare products in the marketplace today. We're also seeing at the end of last year, a lot of people exiting the marketplace as well. Some brands just aren't making it because there is so much in the marketplace. If I'm sitting out in our audience asking myself, boy, I'm hearing Jan talk about these processes and ingredients and salespeople, and I'm just starting out, or I've been around for a year or two and had success. What are some of your best practices, lessons learned that you can share with our audience of entrepreneurs and founders of skincare 
that they can take and learn from your experience? Well, yeah, thank you. That's, you know, flattering that you would ask me that. I guess, first of all, from my perspective, whatever you're putting out there, whatever you're doing, it has to be sticky. And what I mean by that is, let's just say that you have acne. And by the way, acne is an epidemic among women in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond. So even if you break out once in a while, it's still acne. And it's a huge concern. But let's just say I have a product and there's no cure for acne, but I can give you complete total clearing. Well, you can decide six months from now not to use it, but your acne comes back. So guess what? It's sticky. And I can say the same thing for rosacea. And I can say the same thing for discoloration. And so you want to really come up with something that differentiates you from the competition and you want to have some type of validity. You know, we all know, we all know about hope in a jar and we all know that there's so many things out there and it's so confusing. And one of the things that I do when I get interviewed is I talk about skincare myths because you can go on TikTok and you can go on all these social media platforms and there's just so much information. And again, nobody ever tells you they have the second best product. So you really have to come up with something that I believe is sticky. And that's probably one of the number one pieces of advice that I can put out there. It's so true. I think about the way that I look at social media today and how much information is out there because it is, as of now, one of the number one tools for consumers to gather information on skincare. And recently, I've been very impressed with the number of consumers that go on and actually ask for qualifications of people giving out information and ask for what makes that information accurate and correct? Because it's such a problem with putting out those old myths that I thought we had already busted 20 years ago about you know whatever it was, toothpaste on zits to whatever, and they're back again. So I really appreciate this idea of stickiness, not only as a product, but also as an information piece or even as a company ethos. You know, you started talking about what Jan Marini stood for when you founded. And that is sticky. And that's what's lasted and had this company able to last for as long as it has is because the ethos is sticky. And I think that's really powerful, really inciting as an entrepreneur sitting out there listening to this. There's some really nice takeaways. One other thing I will say kind of second to having sticky product is one of the things that is so critical, and I talk about this constantly with resellers, they're always saying, well, I'm going to do all this education and I'm going to lose the patient to Amazon. I'm going to lose the patient to something online. And you've got to develop a relationship. You know, one of the analogies I use is we develop relationships with our hairdresser, right? And we depend on them because we feel like they have such a sense of who we are and how we want to look. And it's so tied in with our self-esteem. And I remember years ago, I came home one night and I was kind of teary-eyed and sad. And my husband said, What's, what are you so upset about? And I said, well, my hairdresser, Loray, I think she's going to move to Colorado. And now I'm going to have to move to Colorado. I'm going to have to move the business to Colorado. But the point was, is that I was so tied in with her. And the fact that how she worked with me and helped me to define the things that I was concerned about, or, you know, how I wanted to look. And so developing that relationship is so important. And today, it's not only important from a business perspective, but it's important psychologically to the end user because we've just come from a world where it's so impersonal. You call and everything you call, get a recording. You can't get a live person. And so having that kind of live interaction and somebody who really understands my goals 
and can guide me through this skincare maze. I think it's so critical. Talking about the relationships and the importance of communication and coming back to some of that core good business practices is a fun topic to really explore further. And so speaking of how to explore that further, how to stay connected, if our listeners do want to reach out to you, how can they do that, Jan? They can go to our corporate website, jammerini.com. And, you know, that's actually, it's, there's a lot of information on there because it's a website for the end user, but it's also a website for professionals. And so there's a professional site within the site in which there are so much information from physicians. There's information from industry leaders. It's so much education and just product information in, in general. So yes, I would encourage everyone to go to our website. Thank you so much. Thank you for the time today, Jan, and really your insights and just being here in this industry as long as you have and seeing the ups and downs of it. And it's such a a nice, refreshing view to have somebody on that's been around and, and really understands it. So thank you for sharing your time and your knowledge with all of us today. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. Well, I it's something I love talking about. So thank you for having me on. And if you want to continue buzzing with us, head over to buzzbeauty.com. This has been Beauty is Your Business. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2021. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network. And find prior episodes at beautyisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening.